There are days that uh, I long for heaven, when I yearn for this world with its brokenness and hurt and sorrow and sadness to be over and finished with once and for all. And I long for the new that is coming. I long for it to be here now. Sometimes I feel this ache on behalf of others when I read about the evil that humans inflict on each other. But often it's a, a selfish ache. It's, it's maybe the tiredness creeping in or how someone has maybe treated me or how I perceive people are responding to me or when I'm simply face to face with my own horrendous sinfulness. Sometimes it's just the change of the season uh, or an unnamed sadness that just creeps over me. And even though I don't verbalize it, I feel that groan, that, that, that groan welling up inside me that says, How long, Lord, how long? It's that deep sigh that Jesus groaned in Mark 7, verse 34. That groan. Now, we've all heard about carpe diem, seizing the day. Well, sometimes I feel I don't have that kind of wherewithal within me for that kind of living. I don't want to seize the day. Instead, I'd rather carpe eternum, seize eternity, seize, seize eternity. I want to know that all that is happening on earth right now in my life and in what I see happening around me will one day make sense and will one day be made right. Maybe you've felt these kind of feelings as well. It was a couple of years ago when Wendy and I were driving a bunch of teens down into the GTA for our annual visit to the Change Conference, and we had a bunch of girls in our van. And, and since it's a four-hour journey, we were, we were playing car games. We were playing I Spy with My Lie, which never gets old, right? And we were playing, the, you know, the car alphabet game as well. And as we got into the central part of the city, we played another game, which was the first person to spot the CN Tower. And after a while, one of our teens shouted up, I see the CN Tower. And the rest of the car said, no, you don't. We aren't even there yet. But she insisted that she was right. And we didn't agree with her. And then eventually we did see the CN Tower. It was like a tiny little spike over there in the distance. And then, of course, the other teens very graciously said to her, see, that's the CN Tower. And so we were trying to figure out what was it that she thought was the CN Tower, all of that way back on the highway. And we figured it must have been an electricity pylon or a street lamp or something like that. And now we have a running joke uh, that whenever we're, we're driving into the city with her, we all point out to say, look, there's the CN Tower, and, but it's not, it's a street lamp. And it's really funny, and we laugh every time. You know, but the point is, is that we did see the CN Tower. It was a view that was blocked by the rest of the buildings, but it was there for a flash. And then it vanished, and then it was there again, and then we didn't see it anymore. Let's turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Mark chapter 9 verse 1 says this, And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not, will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. 
After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and, they, and he led them up a high mountain where, where they were all alone. There he was, he was, he was transfigured before them. His clothes, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, and they, and they discussed what the rising of the dead meant. And they asked him, why, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all thing, things. Why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. They have done to him everything that they wished, just as it was written about him. So here we have the picture of, of Jesus taking those right in the central circle of his friends up onto the top of Mount Hermon, uh, which is near Caesarea Philippi which we learned about last week. It's over 9,000 feet high, so it was quite a hike up. And there they experienced Jesus's true colors. Last week, if you remember, we had Simon Peter pulling off Jesus's mask, as it were, by saying that he is the Messiah. And then we had Jesus himself take off a whole other level of mask as he said to Peter, I am the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that you think I am. I am the kind of Messiah that will suffer, that I that will be rejected and will ultimately lay down his life. Now, if that was not enough, the Lord now leads them up a mountain and in essence takes off another layer, one more mask. It's this final layer, but this time he doesn't actually tell them, he shows them he is, he, he is transfigured in front of them. He shows himself as the glorious son of man. He shows them that he is God himself, that his, he shines so bright that it hurts their eyes. They see Jesus' true nature for the first time. Now, this word transfigured is the same word in Greek that we get our word metamorphosis from. And what this means is that Jesus actually literally changed form. He changed form. So, those with him are kind of like, you know, the blind man in chapter 8. That they... that. The, yeah, the way they see Jesus is rather blurry, and it gets clearer and clearer and clearer until here at the top of Mount Hermon. But what did, what did Jesus look like in this moment of, uh, 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 of metamorphosis? Mark is super restrained in his language. Okay, remember that uh, Simon Peter was Mark's source, and maybe it was simply way too much of a holy moment um, which is why Simon Peter only talked about his clothes. That's all that he references. It's, it's, it's like me. I love my 
phone and I love, you know, the camera and I love sunsets. And so I'm there and I'm looking at the sunset and I have the camera and then I take a picture and I think I'm going to show people. And then you show people and it doesn't look the same. It looks muted. It's not as sharp. It's not, you know, you know it's not neon pink and deep orange and azure blue. It's less. But what we do know is that even though it's, it's, a, it's a muted report that, that this moment branded Simon Peter forever, because what we read in 2 Peter 1 verse 16 uh, is this, where Simon Peter tells us, for we did not follow cleverly, designed, uh, cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on this on this sacred mountain. And so what Simon Peter is saying is that we were right there with him. We saw it and it was amazing. It has changed our lives forever. Now, Luke's account, because we're looking at Mark's account, but Luke's account adds a little bit more. He notices that Jesus' face changed, but still not a lot of information. However, Matthew, he actually goes the whole hog and he tells us that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And this word picture reminds us of Revelation 1 verse 12, which, which, which shares with us about how, about how the Son of Man will appear at the end of time with hair white like wool, as, 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 as white as snow, with eyes like blazing fire, with, with feet like bronze glowing in the furnace, with a voice like a waterfall, and that staring at his face is like staring at the sun. And what you read there is lots of likes, like this, like that. There are some things that are so way beyond our understanding as humans that we have to resort to mundane words to share what they're actually like. We are limited by our language. But what was John's response in Revelation when, when, when he saw this? It says, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I was dead. We will fall down as though we are dead when we see Christ in all of his glory. Every knee will bow. But here on Mount Hermon, Simon Peter is absolutely petrified at the teaser trailer of the end times that he's seeing here. But instead of falling down, instead of kneeling, he starts speaking nonsense. He starts speaking gibberish. Verse 4. And there, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were so frightened. And this is the moment when, when we see Peter's absolute and total confusion. We see Moses and Elijah... And if you remember Moses, he's the one who in Exodus 34 um, walked down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hand. And Exodus 34 tells us that he, did, he, he was not aware that his face was radiant, that his face was shining because he had spoken with the Lord. 
And what Moses' face was shining with was the reflected glory of God himself. And here we have Moses up a mountain again, having a conversation with the Lord once again in the person of Christ. And it must have been maybe deja vu for him. You know, he looked at the Lord and said, haven't we been here sometime before? So that was Moses and there was also Elijah. And why those two? Why, why was it important that there was Moses and Elijah up there on the mountain? Well, because Moses represented the law, whereas Elijah represented all of the prophets, so the law and the prophets. And they are there with, with three men, Peter, James, and John, who represent the church of the future. It's like a big family reunion. And there in the middle, bring them all together, is Christ past, present, and future. You know, the Lord himself said in Matthew 5 verse 17, you should not think that, uh, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to, I, but I have come to fulfill them. And there on the mountain, we see that happening. He fulfilled the law by living a life of absolutely perfect obedience, which you aren't able to, and which I aren't able to. His, when, when he sacrificed himself, the law had the full meaning at that moment. And Christ also fulfilled between 200 and 400 prophecies from the Old Testament, which if you look at that statistically, it's impossible unless he is who he says he is. So he fulfilled the law and the prophets, Elijah and Moses. And so Christ is there up on the mountain having a chat with the lawgiver and the prophet. And Simon Peter's watching this, and once again, his brain shuts down. He says, hey, I know, we're 9,000 feet up in the air on an exposed and a windblown piece of rock. Why don't we just move in? Why don't we, like, set up house here? Why don't we live here? He's totally confused. Because really, what he's saying is, Jesus, we can see your glory we can see it. It looks amazing. So how about we just stop here and you can keep on shining your glory and your greatness for, you know, forever and ever. And then, and then folks will see it and they will come and they will know that you are the glorious and the triumphal Messiah. You don't have to go through all the suffering and the pain and the rejection and the death. You just sit here and shine again. Simon Peter here is spouting words from Satan himself. He wants Jesus to have all of the glory without any of the suffering. But Mark's actually really kind because, you know, there's a little whisper on the side. He says the, uh, that he did not know what to say because they were so frightened. North Wales is a land of valleys and mountains and the scale is massive when you're driving through a winding valley road at the foot of these massive mountain peaks you usually aren't able to look up and see the top because they're usually covered in cloud but but you know there are moments where the sun actually breaks through and shines and for me as a Welshman it just makes me want to cry it's so lovely but for the other 99% of the time, how do I know that the mountain top is there if I can't see the mountain top? How can I know it's there? And the reason I know is because I'm in a valley. And for, and for a valley to exist, there has to be a mountain. Verse 7. 
Then the cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And so, and so Jesus and Moses and Elijah are moved from view. And then the voice of the father appears saying to Jesus, you have my thumbs up. This is great. Just like he did in Mark 1 verse 11. There at the River Jordan. But rather than saying straight to Jesus, um, like he did in Mark 1.11, you are my son, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. But now he's, he's actually speaking to Peter, James, and John. And he's, he's, he's like whispering, whispering as an aside, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And so what the Lord is saying here, what the Father is saying, is that whatever Jesus says, it's how it has to be. There's no other way. So you have to stop trying to convince Jesus that you can have the glory without the suffering because you aren't able to. Stop trying to come up with a better plan because there isn't any better plan. Listen to him. And then there's this verse that made me stop in my tracks. It says, suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. No one but Jesus. Moses was no longer there. No more Elijah. There was no more glory shining from Jesus' face. The voice of the Father had, was, was no more there. You see, what they had seen at that moment, it, it was like they were looking up the mountaintop and the cloud had moved aside and they could see Jesus in his glory. They knew that the mountaintop existed with, with the Father, with Moses, with Elijah, but now it's no more. All they can see is this cloud. All that's left is Rabbi Jesus with these words, listen to him and obey they had glimpsed that CN Tower. They knew that it was there, and then all of a sudden, it was no longer there because the stuff of life was once more in the way. But they knew that the CN Tower was there because they'd seen it, and they knew that the glory of Jesus was there because they'd seen it, even though they weren't able to see it anymore. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. But you know, the question is, for them and for us, was just Jesus what they needed? Was there anything more that they needed? Was he enough for them walking down the mountainside into the valley again? And this verse, you know, for some reason just really grabs hold of, of, of my heart as I look around at my life in the valley. I have to ask myself, can I look around and just see Jesus? To know that he's there with me and that with him I don't need anything else. Because heaven will, will come and the glory will, will come and the, and the rewards will come. And maybe even we can see glimpses of heaven on earth here. We can see those moments when, when, when you know, it seems like heaven is nearer to us than it usually is. Uh, where the glory of God shines a little bit brighter. But if we do ever experience those moments, we have to understand that those are the exceptions. But in Christ, we can always look around and not see anyone with us except him. 
except Christ, and that is sufficient. Verse 9 to 13, it, it really gets rather complicated, and I don't want to spend long there, but, but here's a summary of what verses 9 to 13 is about. Okay, you have, you know, the three is there walking down the mountain, and they start talking about Elijah because they saw him, and he's fresh on their mind, and they said, you know, and so they asked, weren't there, you know, some things mentioned about him that he would come first, and then the Messiah after that, but we've just seen Elijah, which means that Elijah came after Jesus, not before. They're, they're rather confused because they think it should be Elijah and then Jesus, but they've just seen him, and so they've seen Jesus earlier. So to them, Jesus came first, not Elijah. But what Jesus says is that, is that those things said about Elijah going ahead of the Messiah were, 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 were fulfilled in a man known as John the Baptist. He, he came before Jesus. He is this man, man who the prophecy is on about. And so what the Lord's saying at that moment is that since my coming has already been announced, all that's left for me is to do what I came to do, which is to suffer and to die. This is the work of the Messiah. And so with those words ringing in their heads, they head down the mountain into the valley again. End of footnote. Now, 2 Corinthians 13 says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed, are being transfigured, are being metamorphosed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. It's the same word. And so as the disciples were there on the mountaintop, they saw Jesus in his glory. They saw him in a new state. They saw him for that moment as they will one day see him forever and ever. But then that moment was done. That sea and tower was no longer there. It was there for a moment and it was no longer there. But in my experience with the sea and tower, it's, I've not only seen it as a glimpse from the highway. I've also been up the CN Tower. And I've stood on the glass floor and I've looked through and I've looked at how far it is from where I'm standing there to the ground and it scares the poop out of me. I've experienced the, the unveiled glory of the CN Tower. So here's, here's the thing. When we glimpse this little cocktail stick of the CN Tower from the highway, it points us towards this larger reality that the CN Tower exists itself and you can experience it. When I was in Wales in those valleys and all I could see was the Welsh cloud and the Welsh rain, when the tops of the mountains were no longer there because I was not able to see them, when they were concealed from my view, I could still tell you that those mountain tops existed even though I couldn't see them. How could I do that? Because, like I said, I was driving through a valley. And for there to be a valley, there has to be a mountaintop. Because a valley without a mountaintop is a plain. So in faith, that experience of driving through, through, through this valley proves that the mountain exists. If you're hungry, it proves that food exists. If you're suffering, if you're longing for somewhere else, it means that that place exists. This is this 
wonderful eternity that God has placed in each and every one of our heart, this longing for something more, this uh, new land which we read about in the book of Hebrews. And when St. Augustine said this, this is what he, he, he meant. He said this, you have made us for yourselves. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. But what we find out from Jesus being transfigured is that there is a journey for us to reach that place. Right now as I speak, Jesus is, is forever metamorphosed. He is absolutely transfigured. He is glorious. He has reached that mountaintop. But that mountaintop cannot be accessed from anywhere except the valley. First, uh, First Peter 3 says, In all this you rejoice, though for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And, and what First Peter 1 verse 3 means is that suffering is a part of life. We, we aren't able to get past it. We must go through it, and it shouldn't surprise us. But when we suffer, it does not mean that God no longer loves us. Instead, we should allow that suffering to hone the edge of our longing for that mountaintop. We should long it, you know, we should let it um, help us long to not only carpe diem, but also carpe Carpe eternum. And similarly, as we go day after day through our valley experiences of life, we are, see, we are free to seize hold of the day. And God in his grace and his love and his mercy sometimes lets us look at that mountaintop, that, that, that massive cloud breaks for a moment and we see and we are encouraged and we keep on going through the pain and the suffering that is life for so many of us, because the valley proves that the mountain exists. Let's close with Romans 12 verse 2, which, which says, this. let's read this all together. It says, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, be transfigured, be metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind.